Hey there, welcome back to How to Live the Podcast. We are your hosts, Jess and Steph Dadon, and I just wanted to give you a little reminder today that you are somebody's favorite person. Oh, what a lovely reminder. Thank you. Am I your favorite person? Yeah, definitely. Oh, cool. You're my favorite person too. Elliot or Debbie. Okay, I won't tell them. So Jess, I'm really into reading at the moment and book recommendations are just pouring out of me. Well, and I actually just finished Eat, Pray, Love, which is something that you recommended that Uh. I read. Now that I have read it and know how much everyone else has read it, like I keep going up to people and saying, oh my God, have you read Eat, Pray, Love? And the answer is always yes. And then I feel embarrassed that I just read it. Oh, really? Yeah, I feel like it's like this secret club. But do you know what? I think that like Elizabeth Gilbert does this really cool thing where like it resonates in everybody in like a different way and everybody you speak to kind of take something else out of it. It was such an excellent read. I actually struggled to find a book that I liked after reading that because like everything I picked up, I was like, this isn't as good as Eat, Pray, Love. So I'm almost finished Wild by Cheryl Strayed that everybody recommended. Reese Witherspoon plays her in that movie. Yeah, she goes on that hike on the Pacific Crest Trail. So that's also an awesome one if you like travel-y kind of stuff. But also I missed Elizabeth Gilbert's writing because I just think she's like a perfect combo of like smart and relatable and funny. And so I just started reading Big Magic, which is like her book all about creativity and I'm obsessed. Mm, I totally know what you mean. Like now that I've just finished Eat, Pray, Love, I feel like I miss her. Like I, I finished it about a week ago and like I'm really missing her in my life. Actually off the back of that started reading this other book that my friend recommended to me and I'm not even going to going to say it here because I'm actually not enjoying it. But so here's the problem. I made a resolution for myself this year that every month I would read at least one book. And so now I'm like 35, 40% into this book that I don't like, but I feel like I have to persevere because otherwise I'm not going to hit my quota. No, I feel like that totally defeats the purpose of the goal. I know, but like, I don't hate it. I just like don't really like it. No, if I was you, I would just like give that one a big tick and keep on reading. Because the point is that you're reading you know what I mean like that's why you set the goal so you don't have to keep reading out of guilt because I've done that before yeah I know that that sounds silly but like you know I've got like this list going and I want to be able to write like number two but I feel like maybe you should add in an extra rule that is if not enjoying then that's just a tick and move on yeah fair and also like it is the end of January and I've already read a book for January so like I could just call it a day and start a new one tonight I put it to a vote all in favor of doing that yes it's happening so should we get into to today's episode, I think we should because it is with somebody that we have known, I want to say, since I was about mm, five years old. Yeah, which means that I was like six months. Yeah, you were six months. This is somebody who actually used to date our uncle. So that was how we knew her way back when. And it is, of course, the incredible Poppy King. She is a wondrous entrepreneur. She was known in Australia always as the lipstick queen. She had a brand called Poppy King and then she just had this whole saga where it blew up, was the biggest thing ever, and then it blew over and it was (laughs) really heavily scrutinized by the media. So it was pretty cool for us to get to catch up when we were in New York recently with Poppy because we hadn't seen her literally since we were like five and ten years old and we got to go to her office in Soho, which was just so chic and cool like Poppy herself. 
Totally. And so today on the podcast, we talked to Poppy about her learnings from building an empire at age 19, not even joking, she was 19, to having it all crumble down in a really public way, how to create a brand that customers love through storytelling, being a rebel and getting expelled from high school and so much more. I love that she got expelled. That's so funny. We also chatted to Poppy about her makeup tips, but we thought we'd reserve that little snippet for our Facebook group. So if you'd like to join, it's How to Live the Podcast. Just type it in on Facebook. And you know she has some excellent, excellent tips. So definitely go and join us there. Join in the discussions. And if you do want to hear who is on our podcast next week, whoa, what an episode we have for you guys. Stick around to the end to find out who that is. And in the meantime, take it away, Poppy King. Do you remember us? Because we remember you from when we were really little and you dated our uncle, but we thought there was no way you were going to remember us. <laughs> of course I remembered you. I mean, I remembered so clearly you, Stephanie, because you're a little bit older. Yeah. yeah. And it's so wonderful to see. Now I know how my mother's friends used to say to me when they'd see me all grown up and say, oh my God, I can't believe, you know, you're all so grown up. And it just used to be such a sort of, oh God. That, roll your eyes. Oh roll your eyes. Yeah. Now I'm that person saying, I can't believe you girls are so incredibly grown up and just so close and fun and interesting and beautiful. I mean, you just, a, you're a credit to your, to your family. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Well, we always remember you as like, the cool, older, awesome <laughs> girl with like red lipstick on. You know, those were like our strong memories of you. I remember. Well, I think I think you girls, like all the girls in uh, you and your cousins. It was kind of like when I was around. I've always been kind of small, diminutive. So I think you kind of weren't really sure whether whether I was like an adult or a child. You know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. I kind of I went between both worlds for you. I was kind totally. of adult, but also kind of one of you at the same yeah. time. And also, yeah. like as a kid, if there's makeup involved, yes, you know, you're just like this is the coolest person ever exactly so when we were kind of chatting about all the similarities you know you grew up in Melbourne yes. we would love to hear about what you were like when you were growing up I grew up in Albert Park, actually. That's where I was born and grew up in a very creative, artistic environment. My father, unfortunately, got very ill when he was young and died. Mm. But he was a psychiatrist and highly intellectual, very creative, very unusual, lectured at Monash, but sort of unconventional kind of... A bit of a kooky professor. Yes, exactly. And my mother is a knitwear designer. That's actually how she knows your grandmother. Ah. So... My mother does these beautiful tailor-made or couture-made knitwear garments. I mean, they're almost like artworks. Amazing. And all the very kind of posh and well-dressed women in Melbourne in the 70s and 80s ordered these garments from my mother. And so I had an unusual childhood because I kind of went between the world of my mother's with fashion and then also the sort of the intellectual world and my father's and then kind of one my father passed away from cancer which was very unfortunate he was only 40 at the time so mm. it was very unfortunate you know you add that to the mix the sort of creativity the intellectualism and then the kind of horribly disturbing but also incredibly motivating understanding that we don't get to live forever and I think that's where the basis of my entrepreneurship got born. Mm. Wow isn't it amazing what an impact like having creative parents can have on you? 
I can tell you that in the 26 years now that I've been doing ostensibly the same thing in two different countries in two different centuries. So I set out when I was 18 to do an intelligent lipstick brand, meaning lipsticks that were as smartly named and everything about them was chic and smart instead of it just being, you know, kind of like a cupcake or something, you know. And I've been doing that ever since, you know, with various different business partners and various, like I've always just been about making lipstick into a highly intelligent, cheeky and incredibly empowering product and moving it outside of cosmetics so that it's a separate thing almost more like fragrance like its own category Mm. because it's so mind-altering lipstick you know so one of the things absolutely that I realise more and more and more and more is the extracurricular education that I got from my parents milieu and the creative people and and knowing adults that had worked in their lives by generating their own ideas, like that they weren't involved in structures. So, you know, I sort of had the background of the sort of conservative schooling, but then my home life was much more avant-garde. And so seeing both of those, I think, was an amazing balance. It allowed me to sort of go between both worlds. That's so interesting. Like looking at the way schooling even is like a structure and thinking about how that impacts the way that you live your life. Like we're always talking to schools and we're like, we were terrible students. Yeah. It kind of makes you be epic adults when you're like <laughs> wanting to push the boundaries a little bit. It's true. I mean, I certainly did my share of pushing the boundaries. I got expelled from Lorison. Oh, no <laughs> way. <laughs> when I was 12, for being different because I was very different in the mm. way that I thought and the way that I expressed myself and I think ultimately it wasn't a good fit for the school. But I think that you're right. Like the beginnings of entrepreneurship or of pioneering or doing something differently or breaking the mould really, really do start very early on. There's a Jesuit saying, which is that if you give me the boy at seven, I'll show you the man. I mean, it's sort of patriarchal terminology, but what it means is pretty much your worldview is really set by the time you're seven, not kind of what your potential is, but your worldview of like what you're going to value, what you really don't value, what's inspired you, what's captured your imagination, like the real underpinnings of all of that is that very early period. And, and, And I can see more and more how much that very early period is pretty much what I've made my life around. Yeah, that's so interesting. So when you were quite young, were you interested in makeup already? When I was really little, I started playing dress-ups with my mother's clothes and you know, I was very interested. in. But when I first put on lipstick, the lipstick really took me by surprise because I can remember as a little girl putting it on and knowing that it was going to change how I looked on the outside. What really took me by surprise and never left me was that I felt changed on the inside. Like inside, I felt like a different person. It wasn't just outside, whereas clothes and all that other stuff was outside. You know, to a certain extent, there was some sort of internal impact. But lipstick, to me, it was like a superhero cape. It was like I'd found a superpower, you know. And given the circumstances, it was not a particularly happy time in my life because it was around the time that my dad was ill that I discovered lipstick. It kind of became this kind of incredible portal, almost like, you know, Alice in Wonderland. I sort of went through lipstick into a kind of imaginary world that I ended up making happen at 18. (laughs) So what was that like for you at 18? Like what was going through your mind? Because the thing that I find so interesting about your story is like, you know, now it's all about entrepreneurs and it's all about the female entrepreneur. So yeah, like in 2019, a 19-year-old can get up and want to create a lipstick line. That's awesome. Great. But like we're talking 1990. Yes. And so what was that like for you? In some ways, I think for me, I was sort of naive. So it wasn't something that I sort of realized how much I was really putting at risk. Like, Like what a big 
brave, bold step. To me, it was just kind of like, oh, well, I can't find any matte lipstick night. I'll have a lemonade stand. I mean, I really probably would have sold them at Camberwell Market, but that's not how it turned yeah. out. And so I really think I was sort of quite naive. Like I didn't really come out with a plan and a target market and a sense of sort of what size business. I came out with an intention and the intention was to really create an amazingly unusual lipstick in every element, like the texture, the formula, what they were called. They were called it after the seven deadly sins, which was so different back then. So I really just led by the intention of what I wanted to do. And then I found the market for it, but that's not really typically how you know, that's a sort of naive way mm. of doing business. But luckily it was a way that really worked for me of where I just kind of really followed my own instincts. And that naive way sometimes just, you know, we keep hearing this when we're sitting down and chatting to so many different successful people. Often it is that naivety that just lets you dive into it and go for it when somebody else wouldn't. And you have to have that to keep you going forward and it gives you that fire. You're like, nah, I'm going to figure out a way to do this. Absolutely. And I think that I've had to keep fostering that same sort of, I call it the difference between being childlike, which I'd highly encourage to be childlike, but not childish. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Important, so, difference. <laughs> Important difference. Important yeah. difference, uh, yes, because I've been both. But, <laughs> but no, but the childlike is really the sort of clarity that you get from not having a lot of experience and you just see so purely that, hang on a minute, this can be done and also it won't kill me if it doesn't work. Mm. So much a part of success is how you prepare to deal with the failures and all the ups and downs along the way. Like the, the only thing that can guarantee your success, I think, is being able to really make sure that you can deal with the ups and downs. So when you were kind of 19 and you set out to create this lipstick line and then it started to gain momentum and success, mm-hmm. what did that look like? Were you all of a sudden the head of this huge company or was it still like a small team? I mean, it pretty much took off immediately. To begin with, I just had two little stores selling it. One was Bettina Liano and they just had one store in Chapel oh, yeah. Street. loved Bettina Liano. <laughs> and another was a store in the Block Arcade. But I started to get press and so by sending it to magazines, you know, it was well before the internet obviously, so this was, you know, much more traditional media time. Then it just really took off immediately and then it went into Myers and David Jones and that's when it really grew and that's when it kind of the business from a point of view of the numbers kind of exploded. Like it was a very different sort of financial. But in terms of my own structure, it took me a while to catch up. It took me about a year and a half to really kind of build the structure to support the size business that I wasn't expecting it to be that big so quickly. Mm. So initially it was kind of like really just run by chewing gum and string, you know, because it was the happy problem of going better than I expected. So I was just all hands on deck, kind of brother, mother, everyone, grandparents, I think were putting labels on things. Oh my God, amazing. Those are always the best memories, right? And then I built, and then as the business really grew, I started to build in a structure. And it was also in a very different time when employment was very different. you couldn't really get consultants back. You know, there wasn't the sort of gig, what they call over here, the gig economy. Yeah. You know, there wasn't really a gig economy. So if you wanted to have a good process or good protocols in your business, you had to hire people full time. So I ended up then with a bigger structure in some ways than what I needed. Like it was very hard to find the right level of structure back in those days because there wasn't so much sort of work for hire around. So you also at the time won Young Australian of the Year, which is just massive and you were turning over millions of dollars, right? Like at such a young age, was that empowering and exciting or was it stressful? You know, that's a lot for someone so young to be kind of have on that. It was a combination really. I've always appreciated that 
there aren't many people in the world that when they get asked what do you do for a living can say lipstick designer, which is what I am. So like I, it yeah, was, it's probably like th- four people on LinkedIn <laughs> tops. <laughs> I don't even so, think they're on LinkedIn. They don't bother with that. And so it's still something, the thrill of actually having made it my life's work, like never leaves me. Every morning, I, I kid you not, it's really like I'm as amazed by that fact, even if it's going to be a bad, hard day because of business realities in some way, shape or form, or I'm still fundamentally amazed by the fact that I took the chance and it happened and it continues to happen and I continue to take the chances. But in answer to your question though, I think I had a sort of foreboding sense with it. As much as I, I mean, I was amazed and, but I did have a sense that it had happened a little bit too fast and a little bit too easily in terms of like it had just been so fairy tale, you know, in terms mm. of couldn't find a lipstick I liked, you know, I found a factory, then my business partner, and then we developed, you know, so there was just so much fairy tale to it mm. that me being the type of fairy tale reader that I was, which was not so much a Disney one, but more Grimm's fairy tales and yeah. had kind of knew that, hang on, there's going to be a reckoning of sorts here, you know, and also I wasn't very good at school either. I wasn't a great student, you know, because I really didn't take much interest I sort of took school more as a suggestion <laughs> not really not really a command I was like oh, okay I su- you suggest I go to that class all right take that on board but I'll do this <laughs> I'll instead consider it, yeah. <laughs> like I really did like homework oh that's a kind of as needed oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, everything I was, was right just optional to me I think that's the entrepreneurial spirit in us you know <laughs> that's just like yeah okay cool but I'm gonna figure out another way of doing life you exactly. know exactly and so when I finished school I really wasn't that clear on what I wanted to do and I didn't really have have a clear direction but it's interesting how the subjects that I did excel at naturally at school really came into play so I think what really gave me a sense of what I was going to be up against in becoming so successful and so high profile and all of that so quickly what sort of gave me a roadmap was really all the literature I'd read like Anna Karenina mm. Crime and Punishment you know like all the classic because I was always really good at English lit like the teacher at my school used to say can anybody other than Poppy answer what the metaphor is here when we were talking <laughs> about Lord of the Flies so like I was just really but where do you go with that but actually what I realized is all of those incredible classic literature which talks about the consequences of your actions and the consequences like all of those stories when you really distill them down are about action and consequence like you take an action and the consequence shows up somewhere and I think from being such an average classics reader that really gave me a sense that the hard part is yet to come and it did Mm, (laughs) and it sure did (laughs) that's such an interesting way of looking at it like life lessons but from history exactly you know and it's funny because when I've given speeches or stuff like that in American people ask me you know what business book would you recommend I'll say Anna Karenina Uh, (laughs) okay They're like, is that different in Australia? (laughs) (laughs) The Anna Karenina guide to doing business. (laughs) So at that point, you know, you had experienced this huge success. And then I think it was like 1998, somewhere around there, your business started to take a turn. Yes. So what happened there? So basically what happened, you know, and in retrospect, I know the sort of fundamental way in which the classic mistake that I really made with that business and really didn't have any understanding of that led to ultimately 1998 was that I didn't go and raise investment 
until I really needed it. Like I'm kind of like a goody-goody, you don't ask for money until you need it type mm-hmm. thing. But what you learn in business school and what I learned by experience is that when you need to raise investment for growth, it's not when you need it, it's when you don't need it, that's when you go out and you find the money. So I think by the time I went out to raise investment to help me grow the business further, it was already at a point where me taking my eye off the ball to do that and do all the hundreds of pitches and meetings, like raising money is a very big job as a startup or as a venture. So I think that by sort of making a mistake in my timing, I ended up with a business partnership that was not ideal in terms of the skill base. So by the time I could find the investment, I wasn't necessarily in an ideal situation with it. So I had to sort of make a choice that was better than nothing, but not necessarily ideal. And I think that that's what came about in 1998 was really the relationship between me and the people that had invested in it just really was not going well in terms of the overall business strategy. So what happened is that relationship broke down and then I was faced with a number of consequences from that of which one of them was to put the business into receivership and see if somebody else would step up and buy it and somebody did and so then I went on with it. So it was almost like I kind of got to a point where those were all the best choices I could make. But I can also see in retrospect where if I had just started that whole process earlier, I may not have been in that situation, but boy, was it a learning experience. (laughs) Isn't it crazy how there's like such a fine line often, you know, from the outside, it's like such a big thing that a business has failed and collapsed. But from the inside, it's like, we're all just hustling yeah, every like day. To one get... day makes the difference. You exactly. Know? Like it's almost like a game. You just kind of wanted to do what you love, but people forget that in business there's like all of these like little intricacies about it. And Politics. And, and at so many businesses we speak to, they're like, yeah, I'm just trying to work out, you know, how I'm going to yeah. pay my wages next month. Like that's just business. That's exactly right. Like the goalposts always shift, meaning I don't think there's any size business. There's a point where you just rest and say, you know, like all the problems are solved. Oh, <laughs> you yeah, know that, I mean, it's like like life. And there weren't many young female entrepreneurs in 1993. So I think there was also a sort of naivety on the basis of the press in understanding that what I was going through as a very young person in having started high profile in the fashion beauty sector is really not unusual. Like every single designer in America, so many people have had that experience where they've had to sort of pull a trigger like chapter 11 because they haven't got the right situation and then sort of go on from there. So what was the kind of backlash like from the Australian media? Like was that a hard time for you? It was very hard, yeah. I mean, in some ways it had a surprising silver lining because it was very intense and very difficult because the media really did take quite a vicious kind of approach for as praising as they'd always been and then when it turns it turns the other way and I kind of didn't complain about that because I know that that's the sort of Faustian pact you make by being in the media. But it was very difficult to see how... In the media, anyone, especially women, get cast in a sort of role. So say, for example, in that situation, I'm cast as the villain and I'm the villain and I'm the one that messed it up and didn't... Then they just sort of find information to support that casting versus seeing the information and realising, actually, you know, maybe she's actually not the villain, maybe this other factor is the villain, but it's just that they get determined to prove whatever they think is going to sell papers. So, but the silver lining I was going to say is that there was never once through that really difficult year of 
1998 before the business got sold and stabilised. There was never, ever a time, like there was a lot of times we were crying and, what, you know, all that. I mean, there's a lot of stress. But I never, ever, ever, not even in any small part of me, was sort of crying about my public image. And you never know that until it goes. You can say to yourself, oh, I'm not really invested in what the outside think of me. But you can say that. But actually, when that goes... I think that just relieved me so much. Like immediately there were many things that bothered me, absolutely, and still hurt to this day about that period of my life. But what I am always feel so proud of in me is that I know there wasn't a minute when what I was fighting for was about my ego or public image or like that I didn't care about. That's an amazing thing to get to know. Totally. That's incredible. And I feel like super, super rare. Like, do you think that was just inside of you, that that was an aspect that maybe you got to know, but it wasn't necessarily authentic to you? I think it was very much inside of me. I think also because my background, I think because I didn't come through business school or come through a kind of privileged Ivy League sort of way that, again, I had much more of an overall idea of what I was doing in terms of overall narrative and a story and realising that in any good story there's always a part where you have to really deal with your own character and if this is my part, this will set me up for the rest of my life. If I can deal with this, then I won't be frightened of anything else. Yeah, that's incredible to be able to like kind of zoom out of the situation and have that attitude towards something because... It's so easy to just kind of be in it and experiencing it. Well, I think it was just that it was so obvious when I would read the articles about me versus kind of like what was really going on. And I think that it gave me a kind of inner strength that if that had never happened, I would never have had to have accessed. And I think like you managed to not care about what people were saying about you when it was like in such a public forum. Most people struggle to do that when it's just like a few people talking about them, you know, like so many people care way too much about their public image, not when they're in the public eye, just what their friends. Especially now, you know, it's kind of like with Instagram. And I think that I've always felt that the ultimate success is success on your own terms. So I kind of always had a sense and I think from all the books that I've read and took on board and all of that sort of bookwormishness as a kid and everything is that I would rather fail on my terms than succeed on other people. So meaning that what's guiding me is not just a path to success but it's my own path of integrity towards success and there have been times when I've had to really put that to the test. (laughs) And it's just kind of like the way happiness comes from within the same thing. Like success can only really come from your own measures of it. And you actually, you're full of great quotes about failure and success. Cause the other day (laughs) Mia Freeman shared one that you said to her, which was success just confirms what you already know about yourself. Failure is a far better teacher. That's true. And it's really the two go together. And so hopefully You know, now as I'm older and wiser and whatever in Australia, hopefully I can kind of like explain how the two are so related and how important the two are rather than – I think Australia has a very like a sporty mentality. So you think of like kicking goals, like that's something – when you've kicked a goal, you've kicked a goal. Like there's Or like tall puppy syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I'm so short. But so I think that in entrepreneurship, winning and losing is very different to on a sports field. You do both at the same time. It's not just one or the other. You win, you lose, you win, you lose, you win, you lose. Oh, yeah, we can relate to that for sure. It's funny, though, when you talk about the Australian market and kind of going back there. You know, when we kind of brought up your name around the office, like a lot of the girls that work with us are like, 
20 something. They, didn't um, know. they knew who you were. They did? They didn't know any of that. They just knew that you were this like makeup mogul. And right. so I totally get that like when you're in it and the memories are so real and it maybe feels so recent, but it's true that like what lasts isn't that bullshit. It's not yeah. that crap that happens in that year that you think that people were assholes for saying because maybe it wasn't true. It's actually like that lasting memory of what you created and the passion behind what you do that really leaves a lasting stamp. And so I think maybe you might be pleasantly surprised. Yes, I think there is something very much to the fact that ultimately, like what you said, like the details don't matter. What it is is it's just the dedication that someone shows and the ability to sort of really follow through on that, which I definitely have. And, you know, hopefully, as I sort of take more of a role in Australia, I'll be able to not only impart wisdom on failure but also on success as well. (laughs) Which, I mean, you are, like by talking about your failures you are kind of helping people with their path to success as well like it's all just part of it and being honest like that is often a more empowering story to people to hear that rather than just like yeah we did this right then we did this right then we did this right like yeah it's unrelatable yeah exactly yes and really no one is ever a total success or a total failure there's a saying that there's no such thing as a saint without a past or a sinner without a future. Nothing is really that static. And uh, that's the key to entrepreneurship is sort of being able to shift and morph. Totally. And we like to call failures learnings. And I'm sure (laughs) you had a lot of learnings from that. And then, you know, from there, you kind of went away, you moved to New York and you went into Lipstick Queen. What were some of the biggest learnings that you took from that experience into your next business? So I moved to New York in 2002, so it's uh, almost 17 years, and I moved here not initially to start my own new company again. I moved here initially to be in the corporate world because I got headhunted or whatever the word by the Lauder Corporation. Is that like Estee Lauder? Estee Lauder, yeah, that company. But they have a whole lot of brands in Mm -hmm. there, Mac, Bobby Brown. There was a brand of theirs that they wanted me to come in as a sort of trend forecaster and come up with products and so when I got that offer and that they would move me here and organize my immigration do all that kind of stuff I decided to take it yeah absolutely even though <laughs> I'll, I'll take it yes exactly <laughs> it's kind of like, like I think before that even got the job description out like would you be interested to yes <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of knew that the corporate world was not going to necessarily be my natural habitat but I did spend three years as a vice president at the Estee Lauder Corporation from 2002 to 2006 so there was those three years when I first moved here I was deeply embedded in the corporate world, the Fifth Avenue office, the assistant, all that kind of, you know, the devil wears Prada. Yeah, straight out of a movie. Yeah, 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 all that kind of stuff. But I really was sort of pretty clear that that sort of corporate idea of how to relate to the customer is so the opposite of mine. And so I left that in 2006, stayed in New York and started Lipstick Queen. And then Lipstick Queen was really just, again, it was it was pretty much like what I'd done with Poppy, but just did it this time in America and built that company up until 2011. I sold it to a, a bigger conglomerate that has great brands in their stable like uh, Diptyque and Yvelon, Byredo, Marlon and Getz and then stayed with it for the next six years as sort of creative director and overall helping them steer it to grow it and then it got to a point where I felt it had become too big a business for me so I decided to leave that and start up independently again. I like the very early Mm. beginnings that's really my favourite part. So that's I started Femme de Poppy which is my latest brand. And we saw stocked at Barney's. At Barney's, yes. yes. Ultimately between Barney's and it'll be really through my website 
website, femdepoppy.com, that you'll get all the new shades. And I'm describing it as the greatest lipstick show on earth because it's one shade at a time and really highly unusual oh, shades. Oh, so clever. You know, <laughs> so it's almost like a lipstick club, but you don't have to pay to subscribe to it. But there's always something different and something new that's coming. Single shades, really amazing concepts. I consider myself almost like a lipstick studio and I'm releasing singles, you know, like or oh. records. And each one of these is like a different album for me, this lipstick or that lipstick. And so it's kind of rock and roll. It's great. That's really cool. So you mentioned there that when you're working with Estee Lauder that the corporate way of connecting with customers just wasn't for you. And I think what you've always done so well is connect with customers as evidenced by the fact that, you know, like even these young girls in, in Melbourne <laughs> who, yeah, know your name. Yeah. How do you connect with customers? Like how do you kind of see that? Sure. Well, I think first of all, the most important difference between me and the corporate world is that, that I recognise that as important. I mean, the corporate world is only really starting now because of social media and reviews and all that kind of stuff to really understand that their boss is not the person directly above them in the office directly above them. Their boss is the customer. Totally. That, that's who they work for, yeah. is the customer. And I think at the time when I was in the corporate world, there was absolutely no recognition of that. It was really about managing up and only the people at the lowest end of the scale really dealt with the customer. Whereas for me, that's topsy-turvy to my values. Like the customers who I'm interested in and really in being able to sort of understand who that customer is in a non-analytical way but in more of an emotional way and make an emotional connection. That's not something that corporations are set up to do. It's much more analytics. It's, you know, I'm much more about what's possible than what's probable. You know, mm. corporations are about what's probable. Like you have to sit there and decide, well, probably if we do this, this will happen. Probably. Whereas I'm like, possibly if we do this, this will happen. Ah, no, no, no. That's that, a great that, difference. That, that argument doesn't work. No, no, no. Let's go back to the probable. And that's just not me. And even though like bigger corporations now because of social media are in inverted commas, finding out what the customer wants. Really, they're still just chasing dollars and likes and things and there yes. is a difference between that and actually emotionally exactly. connecting with the customer and your way is a much more genuine way. Much more in, it, in terms of how I do it. I mean, first of all, I think that there is a big difference between a follower and a customer. You know, I'm not very fussed with Instagram. I'm kind of never really been somebody that's seen that as a major platform for what I do because I see the platform for what I do is to make really intriguing lipsticks and if I make intriguing lipsticks then whether it's homing pigeon morse code instagram you know like my job is to make a product intriguing rather than try to make it instagrammable like mm. i think that's inherent if you make something intriguing it is inherently instagrammable i think that for a lot of corporations and bigger companies that don't have the luxury of my sort of originality because they're too big <laughs> then they have to sort of do it on an analytical basis which is even though it's direct dialogue with the customer it's not really the authentic dialogue it's still about a numbers game when mm -hmm. I appeal to somebody through the stories. I'm a storyteller and storytellers are not about numbers. That's about really somebody really investing in the story and, and their story becoming part of yours and yours part of theirs. And the story really starts with the product. Like yes. how do you tell the story from the very beginning and like even coming up with those products? What I tend to do is I come up with it usually comes from some kind of concept or idea. For example, you know, a product I'm just about to launch here is called Well Red, which is a red for intelligent women. So instead of it being a red that's quite vampy and flirty, it's much more of a serious and very commanding red, but with, gives you a lot of depth in your eyes. And, you know, so I know the sort of things that women are looking for in lipstick and I'll come up with a fantastic single product that solves it. Like if you're not somebody 
feels you can wear that bright blue mm. red, you know, but you'd love to try red, then you can go to well red. You know, so I look for where there's a need and then I come up with a magical story and then I come up with a product that represents that story. The creative thinking involved in it, not just the creativity with coming up with the colour I love and like even like that name is so clever yes. and you can already feel how like you'd be able to market that. Exactly. Like that flows it's inherent. Through. And I think that's something that like we've learned to do with our shoes as well, with tubes. When we were first designing them, we'd just be like, this shoe, this color, that'll do. And then yeah. we got taught you need to have inspiration for the collection because for example, our upcoming collection. Oh, uh, this is my favorite. Yeah, yeah. you tell the story because you love this This is one. my favorite. Yeah. Um, so we had an amazing mentor consultant come yeah. on and kind of like teach us about that because we really, we have the creativity inside of us, but I think being able to apply it in the way that you're talking yes. about, like it takes time, I guess. Yeah. And something that we've come up with for our latest collection is recently there was an article on our shoes in BuzzFeed yeah. and someone wrote a comment saying my grandma and her bingo crew wear too. <laughs> which is our shoes yeah in the office we're like sending it to each other just like dying over it like thinking it was the best comment ever yeah. and we could just see the campaign like unfolding so we've created our entire autumn winter collection is around this idea of like my grandma and her bingo Go crew wear it. shoes. yes very like inspired by iris atfell even yeah. like grandma yetta from the nanny like yeah, those yeah, kind yeah, of things yes but yeah, like it's actually so fun once you kind of get down to that really like creativity, like being brought into a product. So it's not just a lipstick and it's not just a shirt. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And then for me, like from the marketing, so just does the design, but then from the marketing perspective, we're like, great, we're having a bingo whole launch event. Exactly. Like, you know? The whole narrative unfolds. Yeah. From, yeah. And it makes everyone's job easy because yeah. it's genuinely interesting and yeah. exciting. Yes. You know? And it makes it so much easier to connect with the customer because it's genuine. Because it's genuine. That's exactly right. And so, you know, that's the way that I've always done business is what do I genuinely think would be interesting instead of sort of what do I genuinely think would be successful? Like saying, thinking the success comes from the interest. So we've got a lot of friends who kind of like start brands in Australia mm -hmm. and then they kind of look to the US. I know it's happened with us in our shoe brand as like the next market and, mm -hmm. and it feels similar, but it also feels different. Very different. What's different? about the US market that you've really found? Well, I think the huge difference is obviously the population size and the concentration span, especially now in the US with so much information and media and everything coming at people all the time. What's different is it's very hard to maintain attention here. Like you can get attention, you can come over here and you can generate it, but maintaining it over here really isn't something you can do remotely. Like you need representatives, you need, it's not something that you can just do, oh, like another stockist in Australia. You need to be a little bit embedded here in order to understand how to sort of maintain the attention, how to grow it. Australia is just a very, very different pace. Mm. That's really, I think it's about making sure that you have some actual Americans working with you rather than trying to figure it out just as an Australian because it it is a very different style of business. American business is much more siloed. Like in Australia, we can be jack of all trades, do a bit of this, do a bit of that. In America, you find that people are, that's their job. And the they, other day yeah. we walked past a pickle shop yeah. and we were like, a one shop for just, just pickles. pickles. <laughs> what is the US? But exactly. That goes to exactly what you're talking about. Exactly. Because the population's just so much bigger. The great news is 
is is America has always had a sort of romantic obsession with Australia, especially in terms of products, like in some ways even more so than the UK, you know. Mm, We've definitely found that as well. Yeah, I think in some ways it's easier as an Australian to get into the American market than perhaps other, the European market, but maintaining it is the part that I think people underestimate. Everyone always says to us, oh, your shoes would be so great for the Asian market, you Mm -hmm. know, because they're like really fun and colourful and frilly and everything. But whenever we look at the Asian market, we're like, well, we would need someone there who knew the market to help us go into it. But then you look at the US and you're like, well, I speak English. I got this. I grew up watching American movies. I know how this works. But you're not seeing all of the subtleties that are different. Exactly. And the only way to really build a global brand is somewhat locally. Just because the technology is there, being on the ground is really, really important. So I don't think there's any way to do the US easily, but I think it actually is quite refreshingly easy to get attention, to get meetings and all that, you know, like it's kind of who dares wins over here. But then holding that attention, it really takes a lot more than it does in Australia. Who dares wins? Like the fancy, if you don't ask, you don't get. Exactly. That's what we tell people. <laughs> exactly. So we'll shoot you some quick fires to end off this incredible interview. What is your favourite place to eat in New York? My favourite place to eat in New York, would you believe this is going to sound so boring, but has become my own cooking, my own oh, food. That's a great answer. So because I have switched to a plant-based diet. Now, I know that this is very trendy and all that kind of stuff, but let me tell you, especially in living in a city like New York, like the difference in my nutrition by actually cooking myself. No doubt. So I've been here for 48 hours and my stomach hurts. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So really, like I've really started enjoying cooking myself. But from the point of view of kind of like a favourite place of mine would be Balthazar, which I don't know if you've, oh, you know, it and, it. and it's like going to Pellegrini's or, totally. you know, it's something, you know, like it's just, it's such an institution and I'm actually looking at potentially doing collaboration with them, you know, the, you know, the red leather seats, yeah. doing a Balthazar lipstick, that yes. sort of red, That's you know, um, so I would say my own kitchen, believe it or not, is my favourite place to oh, eat cool. in New York. Well, we hope to eat there one day. <laughs> What is one thing you miss about Australia? Oh, God, there's so many things I miss about. So, but you want to know what, what is so funny and so strange for me to say? The lollies. Like I always thought when I was little that all the best lollies were in the US, but the lollies in Australia. I agree with you. I can't eat much at the moment because my stomach's a bit screwed up yeah. and I keep going looking for lollies and I'm like, I just want some Alan Snakes, please. There's nothing. You, I almost feel like suing um, <laughs> or like launching a class action on behalf of Australians that we were under the impression that there was better candy here. I <laughs> there, agree. And there is, I mean, like, I don't know whether you still have them, but my God, those mixed lollies and milk bottles oh, and yeah, raspberries yeah. and chicos and if you have that sort of sugar craving there's only like full-on like yeah, cookie twinkie. dough you know like kind yeah, of there, yeah. there was this whole level of sort of subtle lolly yeah just <laughs> a few sweets on every level on a nostalgia level and on a taste I really miss the lollies and I just miss that milk bar experience I used to love going to the milk bar mm, yeah <laughs> oh, most really of those fun. are closed sadly oh, yeah. Oh, yeah true and now even the 7-elevens are closing not even they can make it work oh <laughs> Dear. Well, we'll have to sort of reconfigure something else. Maybe I'll start my own lolly bar. There you go, puppy's <laughs> lollies. <laughs> What's the most versatile lipstick colour? The most versatile lipstick colour is really going to be the colour of your natural lips. So not something that takes it paler or darker. So something that is almost like a pink 
but a flesh-based pink is mm. kind of like that suits everyone. Like your own lip colour suits everyone. If you stay in very natural in the garden, so the most flattering colours are colours that you would find in a garden, so roses, so not colours that you find, again, like in a cupcake store or whatever, natural colours, beautiful colours that you see in fruit and flowers are always the most flattering. Oh, that's such a good rule to know. <laughs> I love that. Anything that fruit or flowers can produce, you see a lipstick well. colour like that. Other than orange. <laughs> well, even <laughs> depending on the level of pigment, some oranges can look good, but okay. it's very rarely, yes. And even when you look at how an orange is done, like if you look at an actual orange in nature, it's sort of see-through. So if you look for a see-through mm, orange. That's true. Nature does colour amazingly. Just follow nature. Lead. Cool. Good advice. So we've seen so many like awesome brands doing really cool things around Soho, popping up and things. And, you know, a lot of the brands here are great at storytelling. Are there any brands that you just love what they're doing? Oh, I mean, there's so many things that I really admire about what people are doing over here. But all the shops and all the things that I really admire over here are really much more to do with vintage, not so much about what they're producing now, but about an eye to the past and an understanding of the value of things from the past. So the real real obviously has been a huge success, which, you know, I've been a vintage shopper from way back, but I'm hoping that more and more the understanding of how in fashion you can look without purchasing new. We were actually at the real real Saturday. <laughs> it's so cool there. The last one, what does your ideal Saturday night look like? Oh, my ideal Saturday night would be anything involving either a movie food or friends. I don't like Saturday nights where it's a big event. I don't like sort of going out on Saturday nights. I would much prefer to go out on a Thursday night or Friday night. But Saturday night for me is just really about friends, films, my furry friend, my kitty cat. Mm. Oh, you have a cat? I do. I have a beautiful kitty cat who's actually inspiring a lot of different lipsticks that are coming out next year. So, <laughs> And a Saturday night for me is a cosy night. I think that's the best way to do Saturday night. Mm, awesome. Thank you so much. This was incredible and like a total blast from the past. So yeah, got so to good hang to see you again. Ah. How delightful is Miss Poppy King? I was so excited that she remembered us and she is just like so artsy and fabulous and chic and, you know, her whole vintage look and I feel like she has so much depth to her and that really shows in like the literature that she loves and references but also she brings that depth into her brand and it's just what makes them so fantastic and makes you want to be a part of them. Mm, so true. When we were leaving her office as well, she also said to us, girls, I want you to think of me as your New York fairy godmother. Oh, she did. That was so lovely. You know, she was like offering to connect us with people and just like going really above and beyond and it was so, so wonderful. So if you did enjoy this episode and you you are enjoying our podcast. Really, we love to ask you to help us get the word out because that's how more people can learn and grow and connect and hear these awesome episodes. So you can do a few things. You can rate us five stars in the podcast app. You can share a pic of you listening to the podcast on Instagram. Or you can just text this episode over to a friend. And don't forget to join How to Live the Podcast, our new Facebook group. And you're going to be getting Poppy's makeup tips as a little bonus in there.
So next week on the podcast, pretty excited about this one, guys. It's an incredible, incredible listen. It is Jessamine Stanley, yoga teacher extraordinaire. She is just so incredibly inspiring and this is just such a warm, heartfelt, open, uplifting episode. Here is a little snippet. Body shaming is one of the first things that I learned how to do and so in the way of any good addict, I've been addicted to this behavior and I'm addicted forever. This is who I am. I'm addicted to hating myself. And it's something that I work on and I work my process and I try to see and figure out and some days are better than others and there's huge ups and huge downs, but it's just a path that I'm on. So I don't really feel like I've gotten to this stopping point of like, I love my body all the time. But I think I've finally gotten to a place of understanding that I don't have to love my body every day. And that ultimately, regardless of whether or not I love it every day, it's still here for me. That's on the podcast next week. Until then, remember, you're someone's favorite person. See ya.